Good morning. Good morning and welcome to our morning worship. Particularly welcome those of you who are our guests today and I'm thankful that you can uh, be with us. And uh, I understand that this is the first Sunday that Carl and Gwen Childress are uh, tuning in, so we're giving a shout out to them. I would ask you all to wave at them, but they can't see you. Uh, the camera faces this way, so uh, just let them know that uh, we're thinking about them and uh, continue to, um, to miss them. But we're glad that all of us can be here today as we continue our study of the seventh chapter of Daniel. Um, the first time I tried to preach through the book of Daniel was a long time ago, and I remember it with a lot of pain. I didn't try it again for years. <laughs> And the reason was, I did just fine with chapters 1 to 6, or I thought I did anyway, and I got to chapter 7, and I started looking at it that week, and I thought, I don't have a clue what this is about, and even less clue how to preach it. What do you do with this? And so I just kind of reshaped that whole series. Instead of it being a series on Daniel, it was a series on Daniel 1 to 6, <laughs> and I just brought it to a hasty conclusion. Uh, what I failed to see back then was how closely these latter chapters, chapter 7 through 12, are tied to chapters 1 to 6. And in fact, the two sections of Daniel are both incomplete without the other. Chapters 1 to 6 are not complete without 7 to 12, and 7 to 12 are not complete without 1 to 6. And so we need to get them all together. Chapters 1 to 6 are the story of Daniel... And chapter 7 to 12 are the story of the, of the future, but it's all the story of God and of his dominion, his glory, and his kingdom. So that's what this whole book is about. Now, before we look at the visions in chapter 7, I want you to notice the effect that these visions had on Daniel. Look, first of all, at chapter 7, verse 15. He says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. He became anxious, and he was alarmed. And then down at the end of the chapter, in verse 28, he says, as for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed but I kept the matter in my heart. If you go back to Daniel 5, when Belshazzar saw the handwriting on the wall, the exact same thing is said about him then, that he became alarmed and that his color changed. And now it happens to Daniel because of the visions that he sees. It's obvious that Daniel took these visions with deadly seriousness because he realized that these visions were about the people of God. These visions were about things that were going to come. They were about real events that were going to take place. And we need to keep that in mind because they are also about us. And we'll say more about that uh, in just a little bit. But what Daniel saw was troubling. It was even frightening to him. And that's why he became alarmed. And that's why his color changed. But in the midst of all that, Although it's frightening, although it's alarming, he is reminded of God's sovereign control over the world. That's the message to get from the book. It's not that this half of the book is just full of strange visions. It's not all the weird symbolism. It's not all of that. It is the message that God is in control, that the Lord rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will, as has been said over and over in chapters 1 through 6. And that's the same message we need to get from it. Because we need to, to 
take this book with deadly seriousness just as Daniel did. It's about us. It's about us just as it was about people long ago. I want to start with some observations about these visions. First of all, remember that they are visions. This is just like in the book of Revelation. If you're going to get the impact of this section of Daniel, you have to use your imagination. You have to try to see what Daniel saw. Go through in your Bible and underline every time it says, see, saw, and looked. Because that's what's happening with Daniel. He is experiencing these things. He's not just hearing them. Now, you and I are more at home uh, with narratives, stories, like the Gospels and the book of Acts, aren't we? We get that. You know, those are our favorite parts of the Bible. And we're more at home with propositional statements, such as the ones we find in the letters of Paul. Uh, that the righteous shall live by, uh, by faith, and by works of the law shall no one be justified, and uh, by grace you've been saved through faith. Those are propositional statements. And we relate to that. We understand that. We understand what to do with that kind of material. But visions are another way that God has of revealing himself to his people. And that's what we have in the book of Revelation. That's what we have here in Daniel 7 through 12. And the reason is because visions have an emotional impact that narratives usually do not have and propositional statements do not have. Let me give you an example of that. Did you know that one of the most powerful forms of propaganda ever utilized in the world is movies? Back when Adolf Hitler began to rise to power and he wanted to change the thinking of the German people, you know how he did it? He did it with some, some great oratory, for one thing, but at the same time, he did it by having movies produced that glorified him and his movement, and he sort of brainwashed the people with those movies. That still happens, doesn't it? When people want to bring about social change in the United States and change our attitudes and change our thinkings, uh, thinking about things like morality, what do they do? They go to Hollywood and they produce movies and people are attracted to those movies. They're attracted to a story and the story has an impact on them and it changes the way they think. Visions have a powerful emotional appeal. They have a powerful emotional impact. So as we read this part of Daniel, we need to see with Daniel and use our imaginations to get the full impact of what he's saying. Notice secondly the date of these visions. Chapter uh, 7 and verse 1, the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. Now that means that what's happening, what Daniel is seeing in chapter 7, he saw back before Daniel 5. Because you remember in Daniel 5, that's when Belshazzar saw the handwriting on the wall. And then that very night he died and his kingdom was taken over by the Medes and the Persians. Uh, and that happened in 539 B.C. So the first year of Belshazzar is somewhere around 556 or 555 B.C. Why is that important? Because when Belshazzar took the throne, Daniel knew that the stability that the Babylonian Empire had had under Nebuchadnezzar was over. He knew that these were going to be the last days of the Babylonian Empire. And remember that he was very much a part of the inner workings of that empire. He also knew that this meant that his influence, now that Nebuchadnezzar was gone, his influence was not going to be nearly so great. 
You remember that in, Dan in uh, Daniel chapter 5, that Belshazzar did not even know who Daniel was. By 539 B.C., he didn't even know who Daniel was. The queen mother had to come to him and say, there is a man here, one of the captives from Judah, who is able to interpret dreams. He helped your, uh, your father, your ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar, over and over again. You need to listen to him. He didn't know who Daniel was. So in 556 or 555, Daniel knew that the Babylonian Empire was about to come to an end and that his influence was on the wane as well. So it was a significant time for him as well as of the empire. But what he also finds out is that with that instability and with that loss of his influence, God is still on the throne. God is still in control. The Babylonian Empire may fall. God is still in control. Daniel may not have much to say about the inner workings of the empire anymore. God is still in control. Third thing I want you to notice about these visions, they divide into two parts. And you saw those in our scripture readings this morning. Verses 1 to 14 are Daniel's visions that are actually in three separate parts, and we'll point those out here in just a minute. And then verses 15 through 28 is the interpretation of the visions. So half of it is the visions, half of it is the interpretation. So let's think about the visions together. And, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about the visions. And you're sitting there thinking, yeah, because you can't. You still remember all those years ago when you couldn't do it. No, it's not that. Uh, I don't want us to get lost in some of the details of the symbolism. I want us to see the bigger picture I want us to see the bigger message here. So we're going to look at these visions, but we're not going to, to uh, try to dissect them too closely uh, and in so doing perhaps miss the overall message. But each one of these visions uh, is uh, significant in its own way. The first one in verses 1 to 7 is the vision of these four beasts. These four beasts rise up out of the sea, and each of them is very fierce and very powerful. Now, we know exactly what they are because you go down to verse 17 and Daniel is told. He is told that these are four kings or four kingdoms that shall arise out of the earth. If you stop and think about it, that makes sense, doesn't it? Nations like to choose powerful animals as national symbols. Uh, in our country, we have the eagle. Uh, the Russians have the bear. India has the, the uh, tiger. The British have the lion. I don't know what Scotland was thinking about. They got the unicorn. I, I don't get that. But, <laughs> but most of the time, nations want to have some powerful animal, some powerful beast as a national symbol. And so Daniel is told that that's what these are. These four beasts that he sees are four kingdoms. Now, if you go back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in Daniel 2, you remember that in his dream, he saw an image, a human image with four parts, the head of gold and the chest and the arms of silver and the middle and the thighs of bronze and the legs of iron and the feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And he was told, what? That those were four kingdoms that were to come, starting with his own. So Daniel's vision here in chapter 7 is very closely parallel to Nebuchadnezzar's vision or dream that he had in Daniel chapter 2. Uh, and so the same basic message applies here that applied there. And it is simply this, 
all kingdoms fall. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was being told. You, O king, are the head of gold, Daniel said. And then after you, there's going to be successive kingdoms. That's kind of bad news for Nebuchadnezzar. Your empire is not going to stand. Your empire is not going to last. All kingdoms fall, but God's kingdom stands forever. Same message in Daniel 2 that you now see in Daniel 7. So it's the same basic message. But in Daniel's vision, you notice that the fourth beast gets special attention. The fourth beast is the most powerful and the most fearful of all the others. And, and he gets more attention in the discussion. But before that happens, you get the second set of visions. That's verses 8 through 12, the enthronement of one called the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days. Now, the Ancient of Days clearly represents God because he not only receives great honor, but he also has the power of judgment over the kingdoms. Nobody but God the Lord has that kind of power and that kind of authority. When he takes his throne, the fourth beast is destroyed. But the others are allowed to continue for a time. All right, so the fourth beast is destroyed, but that's not the end of it. That's not the end of human empires. That's not the end of all these kingdoms. The fourth beast is destroyed, but the others are allowed to have their days prolonged for a little while. Now, what does this expression, ancient of days, mean? I think it means simply this. It means the one who is older than all the days. It means the one who existed before time. Maybe this is a reflection of Psalms 90, verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The ancient of days, the one who has always been, the one who always will be. And then in the third part of the visions, the appearance of one like a son of man. He's presented before the ancient of days, and he is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Now, don't miss that because God has the dominion, the glory, and the kingdom. He now gives that dominion, that glory, that kingdom to the one like a son of man so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. An everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and shall not be destroyed. So all of that glory that belongs to God, all that kingdom, all that dominion, is given to this one like a son of man. So those are the visions. What's the interpretation? We get that beginning in verse 15. Daniel asked someone what this was all about. And he says he asked one of those who stood there. I wish he'd said a little more about that. Who was standing there? Uh, obviously there were more than one because he asked one of those who stood there what this was all about. I'm guessing this is an angel because this kind of corresponds to a lot of things we see in the book of Revelation where angels give the explanations. But he doesn't say. He just said, I asked one of those who stood there what this was all about. And he is told that these beasts represent four kingdoms. Now, I want you to notice something very important here. Daniel does not ask what four kingdoms. He doesn't ask what are the four kingdoms. 
I find that interesting because that's what people have been asking about Daniel 7 ever since it was written. What are the four kingdoms? And people have discussed and argued and debated back and forth. Is this the uh, uh, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom? Uh, or does it start at a later time? Does it include the Medes and the Persians as separate kingdoms? Or are they one kingdom? And does it end up with Rome? Or does it end up with Greece? And is the little horn Alexander the Great? And you get into all those discussions about something Daniel wasn't interested in at all. And I think that's important to note. Daniel is not interested in who these kings are or these kingdoms. It's the larger picture that is of interest to Daniel. And so we shouldn't make the focal point of our study of Daniel 7 something that wasn't of that much interest to Daniel. Here was Daniel's main interest. His main interest is that fourth beast, the most ferocious of all, He's told that one of its horns or one of its rulers made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days intercedes and gives them victory. So that, that little horn of that first, uh, fourth beast, apparently one of the rulers of that fourth kingdom, is going to make war against God's people and he's going to appear to win it. It's going to look as though he's won until the Ancient of Days steps in. And when the Ancient of Days steps in, the picture changes. Now, there's much more told to Daniel about that little horn than all the rest of the beasts. But here's the main thing that he's told. He's told that that beast or that little horn will speak words against the Most High and will wear out the saints of the Most High. He will wear out the saints of the Most High who will be given into his hands for a time and times and half a time. If you've read Revelation, you've heard that before. They will be given into his hands for a time and times and half a time. He will prevail for a period of time. But then that fourth beast is destroyed and the greatness of the kingdoms of near the whole heaven is given to the people of the saints of the Most High. So there is this tremendous reversal. And it looks like this little horn has won the day. It looks as though this little horn is going to dominate the people of God forever, but then it doesn't happen. He does wear out the saints. He does speak blasphemous things against the Most High. But the Ancient of Days intervenes, and then that kingdom is given to the saints. No wonder Daniel was alarmed. No wonder his color changed. Because he realized that those visions that he was seeing, those visions were about things that were going to happen to his people in the future. They were things that were going to take place. They were things that were going to happen to the saints. And that was scary to him. That was frightening to him. But at the same time, he got that hopeful message that no matter how totally victorious that beast might seem to be now, God and his people would prevail. God and his people would prevail. And he closes the chapter alarmed at what he's seeing. I want us to go back to that. I want us to go back to Daniel's reaction 
to these visions. To verse 28. My thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. I said earlier that Daniel obviously took these visions with utter seriousness, and that we should too. And here's why. It's because these visions recorded the future of the entire world, and that includes our part of it. That includes our part of it. What Daniel saw was about the whole world. It wasn't about some part of the world. It was about the whole world. It was about the people of God, all the people of God for future times. Nations will rise and fall just as they always have, and some will be extremely hostile to our faith in Christ. See, here's the problem with the way I think we've always approached texts like Daniel 7. We've read them theoretically. We've read them as if they don't possibly apply to us. They couldn't possibly apply to us. And not just Daniel 7, but a lot of other things. Hey, have you ever been in a Bible class where you'd come across that text that says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution? And everybody gets kind of nervous and we begin trying to think, what is that about? Because we're not suffering persecution. We haven't been suffering persecution. We don't want to suffer persecution. We don't plan to suffer persecution. So how do we understand that verse? What do we do with it? What do we do with verse, the verse that says, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. And we love to talk about the part about being glorified in him, but we don't say anything about the part about suffering with him, provided that we suffer with him. We don't like to talk about that saying of Jesus, if they hated me, they'll hate you. We don't like that. And then we come to a passage like Daniel that talks about the beast prevailing over the saints of God. And we just read all of it theoretically. We just read all of it as though, okay, it's either about the past. It's about people way long ago. Okay, that happened. That happened during the, uh, the Maccabean revolt. Oh, or, or that happened during the, the Babylonians conquering Judah. We read it that way. Or we say that's about people in other parts of the world. That's always been a good one, hasn't it? That's about people in Russia or in China or places like that where Christianity is oppressed, but never is it about here. Never have we understood it in that way. We do not think of it in that way. We do not apply these texts to ourselves. But folks, listen to me. The times are changing. The times are changing, but the scripture is not. The scripture says... That all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And that if they hated Jesus, they will hate us. And there are plenty of people in the world who do, who hate our faith. We just need to come to grips with it. They just do. 
They don't like the message of the gospel. They never have. They think it's too exclusive. They think it's too judgmental. They think it's too something. They think it's too this or too that. But they don't like the message. They hate it. It's too restrictive. We're living in a time when people want to do whatever they want to do, and everybody's supposed to say it's all right. If it's all right with you, then it's all right. It's okay. You'll never be judged for it. And Scripture says otherwise. And when we say otherwise, we find ourselves facing opposition. And the more we say what Scripture says, the more opposition we are going to run into. We've already got people in power in our own country who do not like our faith. And it's happening in other places. Have you heard what's going on in Canada just a few hundred miles from here? Not long ago, a preacher was arrested for, get this, inciting people to go to church. He was inciting people to go to church. I think preachers have been inciting people to go to church for about 2,000 years, haven't they? Hasn't that always been part of the deal? Hasn't that always been part of the understanding? Encouraging people to go and worship God. This man got arrested for it. But that's not the end of the story. Before that, before that, he had been harassed by government officials years back. Why? Because he preached that abortion was wrong. And he preached that homosexuality was wrong. And he preached that people shouldn't get divorces for just any cause. And so the government officials were harassing him then. Folks, this is not Russia. This is not China. This is not some exotic place. This is just a few hundred miles from here in Canada, which is probably nearest to us culturally than any other country in the world. And we're seeing many of the same attitudes take place in our own time. In our own country, we need to stop reading these texts theoretically and start reading them realistically as applying to us. What do we do? What do we do about it? Let me suggest to you three things. Number one, Paul said we should pray for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, godly and respectful in every way. That's one of the things. That's the first thing we should be doing. We should have been doing it all the time. Praying for leaders of the nations. Why? Why? So that we can lead a quiet and peaceful life. Godly and respectful in every way. So that you won't get arrested for going to church. Or inviting somebody to church. So that you won't get arrested for telling somebody that it's wrong to kill another human being. We need to be praying about those things. If you're not already, it simply says that you're not taking Daniel 7 very seriously. Because this applies to us. We need to be praying that prayer. Second thing that we need to be doing is to stand firm for Christ when the little horn, whoever that turns out to be, and I don't know who that is, and I'm not interested in trying to figure it out. But we need to be sure that we're standing firm for Christ so that when that little horn appears and sits uh, and tries to wear out the saints of the Most High, we're, we don't cave in. We're already strong. We need to be developing a tough faith for tough times. We've been, had, the, had the luxury of a soft faith for a long time, haven't we? 
Nobody opposed us going to church. Nobody made it difficult for us to go to church. And, and our biggest hardships were, you know, it's raining today. And I might get wet if I go to church. We've had a soft faith. We've got to get over that. We've got to toughen up. We've got to be ready to endure hard times. And the question is, how tough is our faith? How tough is your faith? What does it take to scare you off? What does it take to keep you silent? How much or how little does it take to keep you from standing firm for Jesus? Third thing we've got to do is to place our absolute trust and confidence in the Ancient of Days and in His promises, knowing that no matter how bad it gets, He is always in control. No matter if our nation stands or falls, God is still in control. There was a time when people thought it was heresy to suggest that the United States could ever fall. Why? It's happened to everybody else. It's happened to everybody else. Read your Bible. Read history. It's happened to everybody. We need to be ready to place our trust in the Ancient of Days and believe that he's in control no matter what happens, no matter how bad the opposition might be. When I think back on it, it's no wonder I didn't understand Daniel 7 years ago when I first tried to preach it. And you know, one of the reasons was I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't ready for that message. I wasn't ready for the obvious truth that's expressed in chapter 7. It's really quite simple. Tough times are coming for the people of God, and we need to be ready for that. That's the message. And we're ready for that by praying and by being tough in our faith and by standing in complete trust of God and never giving up hope that the end, in the end, we will share in the dominion and the glory and the kingdom. Daniel 7 says so. Daniel 7 says so. That the one like a son of man has been given dominion, kingdom, and glory, and he shares it with the saints. What a beautiful thought. What a great promise. And the only way to get ready for that is to be sure you're following Jesus today to turn away from sin and from every hesitation of being a disciple of the Lamb and to be immersed into that relationship with Him, with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit through the act of baptism, to die and rise with Him in that act. And then whatever you do, no matter how difficult it gets, do not let go. If you're ready to start following today, Come and tell us. We'll help you. Let's stand and sing.